Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nicole Walker writes about her new book, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, that Utah is a strange place, especially Salt Lake City. A dominant culture encloses the valley in a kind of protective and paternalistic bubble. A sharp and active subculture attempts to pop that bubble. Growing up in a place where subduing the landscape is as practiced as subduing the people who live there is a hard thing. A person is shaped by that hardness. Shaped by the dominant culture and by parents fighting against that subculture, taking the subculture to an extreme, escaping the whole thing. This book is about how I try to stand some ground in a shaky family situation on the dry edge of the Wasatch Fault. Nicole Walker grew up in Salt Lake City, teaches now at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. and She'll be reading from her new book at the King's English Bookshop on Saturday. She joins me for the hour following the news. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nicole Walker, writing about her new book, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, says that Utah is a strange place, especially Salt Lake City. A dominant culture encloses the valley in a kind of protective and paternalistic bubble. A sharp and active subculture attempts to pop that bubble. Growing up in a place where subduing the landscape is as practiced as subduing the people who live there is a hard thing. A person is shaped by that hardness. Shaped by the dominant culture and by parents fighting against that subculture. Taking the subculture to an extreme, escaping the whole thing, this book is about how I try to stand some ground in a shaky family situation on the dry edge of the Wasatch Fault. Nicole Walker, in her new literary memoir, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, uh, writes about uh, her growing up place, Salt Lake City. She now lives in Flagstaff. She is an assistant professor at Northern uh, Arizona University. And she's going to be uh, reading from and signing her book at the King's English Bookshop on September 21st. This coming Saturday, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Nicole Walker joins me from Arizona. Thanks for joining us for the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start with um, the introduction uh, t- to the book. Um, this is was written by uh, Liz uh, Papura uh, because I believe you, you won a contest with this. That's right. It was uh, Zone 3 Press's first uh, creative nonfiction contest. They had hosted contests before for poetry books, but this was their first foray into uh, the creative nonfiction territory. And Leah Papura was kind enough to offer to judge it. And what is so, what I find so um, impressive about uh, what happened with the contest is the number of people who joined me in being finalists for the contest. Jennifer Sinor, who's up at Utah State, uh, Allison Stein, a number of people who are colleagues of mine. So it was right off the bat something that I was honored to be even a finalist in. And then so much, uh, so appreciative having won the contest and Leah choosing my book. And Leah Purpura, uh, she writes about um, that she was asked one time to define her chosen place, the place she returned to for sustenance. Uh, and uh, she thought of uh, beaches of Long Island. Uh, of course, your chosen place, as it were, is a very different place. It's uh, dry desert areas of uh, of of Utah, um, and and in in part at least, this is about going back, isn't it? 
It is. And, you know, it's funny because right now with the flooding that's in um, Boulder and the uh, rainfall we've had in Flagstaff this year, um, it, we normally get about six inches of rain. And this year we had 13 uh, during our monsoon season. So, I, you know, right now I'm experiencing this very strange uh, rem- reminder of that uh, winter and summer of 1983 when the uh, it flooded in Salt Lake and uh, State Street was turned into a river. And the way... It, I think the desert's so interesting, the way that it's shaped by water. To everywhere, the, it's such distinct environmental uh, situations. You, know, you can go to Moab and you have red rocks that are shaped by wind and water. Then you go to the Wasatch Front and this, these mountains are you know, housed once, this great big ocean, you know, Lake Bonneville. And you have these water. Water, it seems so signature all the time. But in this book, especially when I was writing it, we were in the biggest drought. And I was constantly aware of how precious the resource was. And I would walk around my neighborhood and I would give out brochures saying, don't water the sidewalk. And I had a whole, you know, I was teaching a business writing class and they we made all kinds of posters. You live in this place of such extremes, you know, Flagstaff being particularly extreme in its, you know, it's 75 in the day and 35 at night. Um, Salt Lake has that too, um, not only in its weather and its its local environment, but also in its culture. So it's a really easy way, I think, to make metaphors of your life when you live in such an extreme place. And I think Leah Perper's writing reflects um, more of the ocean uh, turn than my writing, which has much harder edges and makes leaps and jumps between topics much more quickly because of that pressure, because of that hardness. And we're shaped by the, the place we grow up, right? So how do you think you were shaped by, by not only, you, you mentioned the physical landscape, right. but also the, mm-hmm. the cultural landscape? You know, my family, We uh, both my parents were born into um, LDS families, but my parents, when they... Uh, they got married when they were, or they started dating and moved to New York City when they were uh, 22, 23, and um, got married shortly thereafter. Uh, I think the effect of them living in New York City, my dad went to Columbia, they brought that back to Salt Lake and were really resistant in the same way that the rock is resistant to water. They became really, I think, resistant to the local dominant culture. And so it was it was sort of a tough place to grow up because I grew up not in the city. I think if I'd grown up in downtown Salt Lake City, it would have been a little different. But growing up in the suburbs where almost everyone was um, a member of the LDS church, I was always sort of an outcast, not entirely. You know, it's like I had friends, but there were limits to um, how much I participated. You know, I didn't go to mutual. I didn't have primary. I didn't meet meet with my friends on Sundays. And so there was always this sort of uh, distance from, I think, everyone around me, which probably contributes in some ways to why I'm a writer, having that sense of being a little bit outside, looking in and observing what's going on around me. And you write your parents, your mom and your dad, they they resisted the dominant culture in mm-hmm. different ways. Indeed. I mean, a lot of it was just by not 
uh, following, you know, the words of wisdom. So my dad smoked and they, both my parents drank. I think that was part of it. They were really acting, you know, to say, we are, you know, well-cultured people. This is what people in New York do. They, you know, they had went to dinner. They had lovely parties. Um, a lot of that was, I think, stuff they brought back from uh, New York City. Those are big readers, um, which, you know, I mean, not to say that chain, that um, people that, and the Mormon church are not big readers, but to say they would read everything. We had shelves and shelves and shelves of books, and there were no prohibitions against what I could read. And so I was, you know, in 10th grade reading Roots and was had sort of a purient interest in, uh, in, some, in, in some of the books, you know, looking for the most disturbing scenes and things like that. And I think that was another way to resist the culture that I wasn't, you know, that I didn't have to stop reading at a certain point in a book, or there were books that were not allowed. You, you write that your father tried to single-handedly subvert the dominant abstinent <laughs> culture by drinking a lot. In fact, it, it, there's a passage in the book where uh, growing up, a scene, very uh, poignant scene, uh, you, you said your father, uh, you know, drank a lot of water. He always mm-hmm. had a glass in his hand. It was only later you you found out that about half of those were, were it was not water. Exactly. And... Um, it, you know, my parents, they drink Chardonnay um, in wine glasses. It was not like my dad and my mom were obvious alcoholics. Um, and, and maybe toward the end when I was uh, graduating from high school. So in our family, it was the normal culture to drink and to, you know, drink gigantic glasses of water. And it was, you know, after, not uh, not when he died, but after I went to college that I realized that those, um, half of those glasses were filled with vodka. He kept a bottle of vodka in the trunk of his car. And, you know, there were times he, he had accidents, DUIs that we didn't really know were DUIs. I, I think maybe we understood to some degree they were, but we didn't know what that meant because in our, you know, in our enclosed family it was it was not quite normal but it was not it wasn't so extreme my dad was you know even when he was drunk he was a generally nice drunk kind of a sloppy drunk um and he just thought this is this is just you know dad had too many glasses of wine tonight it wasn't so much we thought it was destroying him on the inside and you know he thought oh we're you know we're a unique cosmopolitan family as opposed to oh this is actually somewhat destructive Hmm. you you also write that um with every drink he banged his head against mormon granite and with every drink he hurt his head never making a crack in that granite kind of you know uh, this this metaphor water uh, against uh against mountain uh but but for him it was destructive that's right. I mean, water does a better job than alcohol. I think it corroding um, the dominant culture or the dominant granite um, that, that surrounds you. And it's too bad. You know, I don't know if he ever abstracted himself enough from his actions to see what he was doing or to sense that he wasn't. This was not a worthy battle. Um, there were better battles to to take on. I think, and you know, personal struggles that maybe he may have been more successful. There's a part in the book where I, um, a couple of days before he died, he called me in the middle of the night and he said, you know, he didn't know what time it was. After my parents got divorced, he started drinking a lot and went rapidly downhill. Um, so he calls at 2.30 in the morning and he's not sure what time it is. He thinks it's 9 or 10 in the morning and a normal time to call. I'm like, Dad, you got to get it together. You know, this is too much. You can't, you know, obviously this is killing you. It's 2.30 in the morning and you're calling me. It's like, it's okay, Nicole. You know, I've won all the awards. I'm going to win. 
and this idea of sort of giving in and giving up, I think it, it changed. Uh, it changed his body. I think he became completely uh, subject to alcohol's pervasive uh, deterioration, and you know, died shortly thereafter. And in a lot of ways, I think he knew that he was doing that, and he, well, you know, it was he meant to. When he said, "I've won all the awards, I'm going to win," I think he was saying, "Look, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to beat this." Um, culture. I'm not going to beat myself. I'm not going to beat my alcoholism. And you know, said I had a you know a somewhat of a good life, and now I've kind of screwed it up, and that's that. Yeah. It was very bittersweet in a way to have um, him recognize in this uh, you know middle of the night conversation what he was doing. Yeah, that's very poignant. I've I've won all the awards. I'm going to win. Uh, it's, it's very affecting. Uh, and he died what at fifty? Yeah, he was exactly fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Leah Papour in, in the introduction uh, talks about, uh, you know, some of the metaphors that you use and, and this idea that uh, body and land metaphorically reflect each other, but also perhaps physically. It's right. I mean, you can there's a there's a passage in the book that says, what can you what can you change? What power do you have to change? The world around you, and I think that's one of the you know gen- projects I'm working on in in all of my books is okay. There's so much change you can make. How much are you going to throw yourself into this and make sure that it doesn't it, turn around and hurt you back? It should shape you back, but it shouldn't hurt you back. And so things like you know what you uh, how much you drink, you know how much you eat, how much you exercise are all sort of reflections to me of how uh, one acts as an activist in the environment, actually, and how much you throw yourself into, you know, walking around neighborhoods, giving out brochures, telling people not to water their sidewalks, you know, is one thing that is not going to to um, kill you, right? You're doing a little bit of positive good. I think there's times in my life when I've been so invested in what other people are doing to the environment um, that it's been detrimental to me, that it's made me a negative person or made me look badly on other humans. And what's the point of looking badly on other humans? You know, I think little small steps that we can make that are positive and embracing as opposed to disaffecting uh, is the way to make, I think, useful change that doesn't turn around and make you a jerky person. Mm-hmm. Your dedication is very interesting. It's to my dad who couldn't make it and to my mom who could. What if you talk a little bit about your mother and how she reacted to some of these same, uh, you know, forces that your dad reacted to? My mom is a great person. I mean, there's a couple of chapters dedicated to her in the book. And, you know, my mom, she still drinks. She drinks Chardonnay. She's, you know, she doesn't drink vodka out of the back of her car. I mean, that's the main difference. And she's also, um, she's just a generally supportive and fun person to be. Um, Whereas my dad was like, I've won all the awards I'm going to win. My mom was like, their life is so rich and full of change. And she loves change. You know, she's always said this uh, growing up my whole life. I love change. And I was like, Mom, that's crazy. Nobody likes change. But as I get older, I see what she's saying. That you, if, From a, an observer's point of view, watching things happen is the point of living. And that seeing your kids have kids and seeing um, your even uh, it's difficult for me to go to back to Salt Lake because it changes so much so fast. And to my mom, it's like, no, it's great. This is, you know, now the farmer's market, uh, this gigantic festival and the, 
the there's green space and people are really committed to preserving this area and sure there's a development or 20,000 um out in Draper where we used to ride horses but the general changeness I think makes her happy and I try to to channel that when I get distraught about about Salt Lake's changing landscape I was interested to learn that you you gave your mother and I think your sisters the, the manuscript allowed them to look at it and did you make changes based on their comments? That's right, I did. And my sisters and my mother, I let read everything that I write because to me, especially in nonfiction, it's very important to bring the people you're writing about into the text. Um, and by that, I mean I don't mean that. Oh, they no one said. Oh, that's not how it happened. Change it. Or I don't want to, please don't use that passage that I said. That they, they don't want to affect it that way. At least my family doesn't. They want to say this is part of me too, that I'm writing this with you. And so when they edit or, you know, or look for the metaphorical leaps that, that don't make sense or they find typos, I think they get to own the book in some ways and they get to say this, I am in control of, of the, this text. Um, as much as as much as I can be, and it's been a great honor to have them be a fully participant because it's a hard book I think for especially my mom you know to to read, and she not only read it but embraced it. We're talking with Nicole Walker. Uh, she grew up in Salt Lake City. She writes in her book that uh, Utah's a strange place, especially Salt Lake City. Dominant culture encloses the valley in kind of a protective and paternalistic bubble. Sharp and active subculture attempts to pop that bubble. And uh, there's uh, metaphors about water. Also metaphors continuing that about dams and bridges. We're going to have Nicole Walker read a couple of passages from her uh, literary memoir, and we'll talk about that. Uh, she, along with many people, laments Glen Canyon Dam. There's an interesting passage uh, where the houseboat on Lake Powell that they were going to enjoy for a weekend sank. <laughs> um, we're going to talk uh, much more with Nicole Walker, who now teaches at uh, Northern Arizona University. That's where she's talking to us from. You, you are welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. More following break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll experience the subtler, more acoustic side of Arabic music with ballads by Middle Eastern and North African singer-songwriters and small ensembles. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Acoustic Arabia, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Fridays at 10 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you by the USU Extension 4-H and Youth Programs, assisting youth in acquiring knowledge, building character, and developing life skills in a learning environment. Information at utah4h.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Nicole Walker. Her new book is a memoir, um, Quench Your Thirst with Salt. Uh, growing up in uh, Salt Lake City is uh, not a part of the dominant culture, and uh, parents fighting against that uh, that culture, part of an active subculture. And uh, she writes that this book is about uh, taking the subculture to an extreme, escaping the whole thing, about how I try to stand some ground in a shaky family situation on the dry edge of the Wasatch Fault. 
Uh, Quench Your Thirst with Salt is the name of the book. Nicole Walker now teaches at uh, Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and she'll read from and sign her memoir at the King's English Bookshop. That's on September 21st at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Nicole Walker, I wonder if you would uh, read, this is a passage you selected, uh, page 78 in, in the book. Uh, This is a subheading called Establishing Boundaries from a chapter called Hard Water. I wanted to be more like rock than water. I didn't want to be so easily moved from one side of the swimming pool to the other. I didn't want to be like the Colorado, pulling up against a man-made border. I wanted my own borders. I wanted to be the shifting tectonic shelf, but I didn't know how to do that. It was so much easier to let boys swirl their fingers through my hair, to splash against my bucking skin, to feel like they were falling deeply into me. But just like a lake that permits a rudder's plunge, once the boat is docked, the water slides back over. I want to change. I also wanted to shore up my own self. This did not happen. Maybe because I'm a Scorpio and a water sign, I'm destined for some gentle pushing around, not hard, forward moves. I did keep moving. I tried to go north and toward water. I moved away to college, even though David, the boyfriend I almost couldn't leave behind for a three-week vacation, couldn't come with me. He tried to move to Portland with me, but the $80 he'd brought with him to rent an apartment near campus was not enough. He returned to Salt Lake, and I stayed in Portland, where everything is lush and water isn't just something to be pushed around. In Oregon, water makes its own path. It forces the landscape as stubbornly as rock. I was making choices. Well-reasoned ones, although if I had known that David couldn't come with me before I had got there, would I have gone? I still shifted in the stream of boys' opinions. Mm-hmm. And in, in Oregon, the, the water situation is very different. You, you know, you, as you say, the water, you, you can't control the water as well. Yeah, there's so much of it in Oregon. It, indeed. And it's, it's such a different, I was just, as I was saying earlier about the monsoon season we've had here, it's been like the Northwest. Uh, except on a much more dramatic scale because when it rains here, it doesn't drizzle as it does in Portland and makes these huge storms come in and rain comes down in sheets as if it's a tropical rainforest. You know, and Portland's a temperate rainforest and it's pretty mellow about its rain. Um, rarely is there uh, thunder and lightning. And these storms come in and you can feel the power of water when it's in the desert. In Portland, the power of water is so pervasive. I mean, you feel like you're almost living in, in an ocean. I lived in southeast Portland and uh, Willamette uh, rivers down down the street in the Columbia's, you know, a couple miles away. And it's almost like an island. You can just, so much water is everywhere. And you get used to it. Um, and, and, you know, the streets are used to it. Things like what's happening in Boulder don't happen because rain is, is so pervasive. But the whole, you know, the industry is of, of Oregon is based on water, you know, how, how big the trees grow to uh, make the timber industry uh, what it is and the fishing industry and the hydroelectric power. I mean, water is just integral to everything that happens. Whereas in the desert, it is integral um, occasionally and oftentimes, you know, to the detriment of the water. Uh, So like things like fracking and mining and other industries, you know, pollute the water. And uh, that, that preciousness, you know, makes, makes me think it's that I uh, like diamonds or gold or, you know, anything that you love, you just want it so badly. So the monsoons are starting to let up here in Flagstaff and I'm a little depressed. I really love the, the, sense for a little while that 
uh, water isn't so scarce. Mm. You you write that uh, when the Mormons came, they could have followed the Oregon Trail. They could have ended up in Oregon, but they they took a detour. They they went south and ended up in this uh, you know very dry place. And uh, and then you you go on to talk about what what they did with the water. That's right. That you know they took a hard left in Evanston, um, and what it's amazing testament to uh, to Mormon culture how they irrigated the valley. Um, you know Native American cultures had done something similar in in Phoenix, um, and you can still see remnants of that, but on such a smaller scale. Salt Lake Valley is, you know, it's beautiful. I was just thinking how in Flagstaff we don't have any rivers. But Salt Lake is actually marked by its canyons and its streams coming down from them. And the idea that even when they, you know, as soon as they they moved there, Brigham Young had people go into the mountains and start creating reservoirs and irrigation dams uh, and ditches. Um, You know, and I can still picture at my great-grandmother's house these ditches that would flow with water for everybody's water share would come to them, and you'd have to drive your car over the the passage, uh, the the driveway, and the water would be flowing underneath you. So even though water is super scarce, it was present in these narrow, um, organized ways. And Salt Lake, you know, wouldn't be what it is without the the Mormons coming in and transforming it. And compared to Phoenix, you know, it seems now, uh, now that I've lived so close to to more proper desert, um, Salt Lake seems lush in comparison to that. Um, The way that, that, you know, Liberty Park is so green and that uh, City Creek, the river has been unearthed again and it flows through the new uh, shopping mall. Water is becoming, I think, seen as something to be uh, displayed as this great privilege that we're not, we, we, we should be careful with it. And one way to be careful with it is to, you know, build parks and, and uh, fountains and uh, scenic ways of looking at that new City Creek uh, shopping center to say, look what we have. We do have a little bit. Let's be careful with it. Uh, and to me, Salt Lake has changed tremendously in the way that the uh, city has has said, let's let's look at the water as opposed to just use the water. Hmm. Well, what we do with water, what, what does it say about us? I think we, I was talking with my friend Steve, and it's you know, very generational. Uh, we were doing dishes one night, and we, in between every dish, we would turn off the water, scrub the, uh, scrub the pan or scrub the plate, and then turn the water back on, quickly rinse it, and, you know, put it and dry it and turn off the water and dry it. And we were talking about how our uh, parents' generation tends to just turn the water on and leave it, uh, leave it running. Uh, even though they can, I think, be very uh, careful with resources like electricity, uh, the water, I think at some point, people said, oh, it's everywhere and permanent. Um, and what we do with water, you know, we, what I think aligns where your um, values are. You say, all right, my the most important thing to me is my house. Therefore, uh, what my house looks like. So I will water the grass, and I will mow the lawn, and I will have a beautifully manicured lawn. Says that you're interested in um, in looking like you've got it together, right? I think that's mainly what people want to say with their with their nicely done lawns. As people start to zero scape, and you know, and especially in Flagstaff and Phoenix, there's l- less lawn than in Salt Lake. People. Um, 
you know, have rocks. And they, it, it's, you know, this is a way to change the, or to change how you find beauty and that water is more precious. Um, but, you know, I think we also do, we, like I said, we still do things like fracking and mining that hurt, hurt the water to an irrecoverable space. I was doing, a, I was writing an essay about um, these microbiologists that work in, um, at ASU, Arizona State. And there are there are microorganisms that can go into water and repair uh, things that have gone wrong. So, for instance, in, if uh, fertilizer is overflown into the waterways and there's too much nitri- nitrates in the water, they can actually insert microorganisms that can convert that wa- that nitrate into pure nitrogen, and it's no longer dangerous. So, I mean, to me, you know, the way we manipulate water is so interesting. I guess that might be the most uh, reflective thing about about our culture. And so we think we can always fix it. It'll be fine. You know, we can frack it. It'll be fine. Um, it all comes back. You know, I always joke around and say it's all dinosaur pee. Um, you, it's, it's the same water we've been using over and over again. It does filter itself. It's a great optimism, but also maybe a little too optimistic that at some point, you know, are we going to break the water fully or use overuse the water until it's no longer useful? So I think it, particularly in American culture, it's a great thing that we have this optimism, but sometimes not so much uh, forethought. I wonder if I have you read a, another page. Uh, this is uh, page 85. And you talk about the Glen Canyon Dam. And uh, to set this up, you uh, you went to the website, I guess, the Glen Canyon Dam. Is this the Bureau of Reclamation? I'm not sure. but um, and, and they talk about some of the bad changes that happened when the, when the dam was built. Uh, most important of those, probably the, the water temperature. Right. Uh, my in-laws just got back from a Colorado River uh, trip below the dam. And they said this year, because of the rainfall and because they probably let some extra water out of the lake, Usually below the dam, it is blue, cold water. But this year, it's cold, but it's really uh, is really muddy. They said they couldn't get the mud out of them at all. So it's interesting that you know you, you manipulate it. That's another example of great manipulation of this dam and this gigantic lake that covers miles, you know hundreds of square miles. Okay, that's exaggerating, but anyway, big. Um, and you manipulate it, but nature pushes back. You know, it's like well, no, this, this year we're going to have silt in the river, whether you want it or not. And of course, and then then you then you uh, you know quoting this site, you say you know that the species of fish, the native species are gone. The, the, there's new species of fish, uh, and then uh, the second paragraph there, at the top of the page, this is from that website, and then continuing down to, uh, you know, near the end of the page there. As the habitat as the habitat changed, so have plant and animal species. Native fish, unable to survive in the colder water, have left the river. Five species are now endangered. This new habitat now supports a healthy trout population. Before Glen Canyon Dam, spring runoff spilt and rebuilt beaches and sandbars and scoured away riverside vegetation. Now sediment is trapped in Lake Powell, and the dam prevents high river flows. Riparian vegetation now grows along riverbanks, creating habitat for mammals, birds, amphibians, insects, and reptiles. Who wouldn't argue for these changes? Green grasses, riparian riverbanks, Five species of trout to fish for instead of the near-extinct chub? Who wants to eat a fish called chub, sucker, or squawfish anyway? Who ever heard of chub almondine? These changes confirm what we value, constancy in water temperature, greenery in ideals, an end to flooding, predictability, and clear see-through water, cleanliness. 
Glen Canyon Dam made a little slice of heaven beneath it. The dirty Colorado has been reformed. Once the Colorado River menaced seven states in Mexico with its unreliable, unproductive, silty water. However, the effects aren't entirely ideal. The silt that used to be distributed throughout those seven states in Mexico is now backing up against the dam. The turbines move more slowly every year. The river used to empty into the Gulf of California. Now it serves those seven states and Mexico with potable water and some electricity, but reaches its delta in a mere trickle. As the river ends further and further from the shore, you'll be able to hear the clanging of empty pots as the seven states plus Mexico clamor for water. Hmm. That gets us into, and you write a lot about, boundaries, limits, uh, and water is a good metaphor for that. It is. Um, like I was saying, you know, the the river sometimes pushes back and turns its what was clear water um, into silty water. Um, that you think, you know, you if, and this it goes, uh, I think, pairs nicely with what I was saying about Salt Lake revealing some of the rivers that used to be sort of hidden under sidewalks and streets. Um, that water is dangerous in a lot of ways, and you think you can control it, and you can dam it, and you can make it, um, you know, make it make this much water come out of the Glen Kenny Dam this year. But as we saw in Boulder this last week, you know, you whole mountainsides and whole houses get um, washed away by water. And I sort of feel this is true about boundaries. People are very good at establishing, or some people are very good at establishing boundaries. But in a dramatic moment, as dramatic as a water flooding, its, a river flooding its banks, boundaries collapse. And I think the one goal I have, at least for myself, and think it's you know generally a good a good project, is to recognize that sometimes when the boundaries go, that's a good thing. Um, that we get pretty rigid, and you can um, not want to talk about things or not want to do things that are uncomfortable for you. Um, and I think sometimes letting them go. But then, of course, there's the converse side of saying if you don't have any boundaries, which is, I think, something that was um, true for me, not growing up. I think you know, my parents established you know, good rules. But for my personhood, like I don't know when to say no. Um, it um, proceeds into my career. You know, when I, somebody says, can you fix the website? I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess I'll figure that out. That uh, I don't have a lot of boundaries in terms of what is uh, too far for me to go. And I think that began when I was really young and is something that um, that I try to establish. But when I do try to establish them, I recognize that, that they're, almost, they're, they're false boundaries in a lot of ways, that my natural force is, is more like nature and that I'll, I can put up in as many dams as I want, but something will probably turn and make them collapse. And I try to be forgiving with myself about that. You, you write that uh, you love it when metaphors break down. When they break down like water, you say, and the water is so bossy, the granite is so bossy, the church is so bossy, we don't like authority, we take it out on our bodies. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, we take it out of ourselves that, that when uh, that metaphor comes, you know, from my dad a lot and saying, okay, I'm going to boss you right back and you can't tell me what I can, can and cannot drink. Um, but I think, you know, we do it in a subtler and, and, you know, maybe even less damaging ways. But, you know, how, how do you assert yourself? How do you assert your authority in the face of, you know, uh, in, in the face of, of things you just see as wrong? So to think of it, you know, from an activist point of view, doing those small things, making small changes or putting, you know, little stickers on water bottles saying, you know, maybe you should just buy an algae. Um, making little changes, I think, has a uh, 
has an effect in the same way that water that drips from a stream in a uh, capital reef can eventually make a very, very large pool uh, and drip, uh, make a crater in the, in the rock. Mm. You're talking about incremental change that, that can be powerful over time. That's what I think, yes. Yeah. We're talking with Nicole Walker. Uh, her new book is Quench Your Thirst with Salt. She grew up in Salt Lake City, and uh, she uses water as a metaphor of limits, boundaries. She talks about dams and bridges. Uh, she has lived in Portland. We talked uh, about that. The water situation very different there. We talked about uh, how your your chosen place, as it were, your your childhood place that shapes you, how that has an effect, a lifelong effect, and certainly did with her. Very interesting story about her uh, parents as well. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the the last chapter in the book. If we can, we'll have her read some more as well. Um, very interesting uh, chapter about fears, um, including um, her, her pregnancy and uh, birth of her daughter, and uh, looking up the sex offender across the street. And uh, she has very interesting things to say about Little Riding, Red Riding Hood. Uh, more following the break. This is Tom Williams of Utah Public Radio. Tuesday evening, September 17th from 5 to 10 o'clock, a generous Logan restaurant will donate 20% of its sales to UPR. You can dine on your own between 5 and 10 p.m. or meet and eat with me and my UPR colleagues from 6 to 8 o'clock. A special menu that includes fettuccine alfredo, ribeye steak, or grilled salmon is available. I look forward to meeting you. Complete details and reservations are at upr.org. That's upr.org. Thank you. And a programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you by Elan Magazine, a bi-monthly artistic celebration of inspirational stories from extraordinary women, defining the Southwest lifestyle through culture, art, and adventure. Information at elanwoman.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Nicole Walker. She's author of a new uh, literary memoir, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, uh, about growing up in Salt Lake City and about much more boundaries. That's the subculture pressing up against the dominant culture in Salt Lake City about uh, water and uh, how we can control it, but uh, but not forever. Uh, and uh, Nicole Walker is uh, reading and signing from her uh, book at the King's English Bookshop, on Saturday afternoon at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, she's my guest for another 10 minutes or so, and you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join me at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Utah Public Radio. Um, re- reading the reviews, uh, it seems that this last chapter has had a big effect, as, as you could predict, uh, where the wild things are. Maybe to set this up, um, you. <laughs> this was an interesting passage to me. You, you're watching your dog, uh, Cleo, who's a quarter quarter wolf, right? Right. And the dog's licking the baby, and and you say that uh, she'd never hurt anyone, right? We think, <laughs> we think she'd never hurt anyone. There's that. There's kind of the kind of that danger, the danger of wildness. Exactly, and we try, you know, and I think the the word think is important, that, you know, humans want to be able to think and imagine the 
behavior of all animals and what what can we understand about nature and what how can we control nature and how can we think about it. I think even thinking is a kind of control. And you, if you think it first, you know, I have a couple of passages in the book like this, that if you think it first, maybe it won't happen either, that you can trick the world into obeying just because you've thought the worst thought. Um, and in this, this um chapter, which, it, you know, it, it pulls together a lot of the themes from the book, especially ones about boundaries. And there's a passage where, you know, pronouns turn from I to he to you. Um, there's so saying that even language, you know, tries to establish boundaries but can fall apart. Um, this idea that you, you know, are hoping your dog is just a regular nice dog, but, you know, what if it's wolfish shine does come out? You live. You have to learn to live with these what ifs somehow, and in, and this, uh, you know, when you're having a kid, you think oh, the whole world is full of what ifs, um, and how do you deal with those fears? It goes back to what we were talking about about um, boundaries, and you try to establish what you can, but uh, there's some recognition in you that, that nature is bigger than you, and especially you know when you're pregnant with a kid, you uh, you are subject to nature's whims. And you, you say you you cried. You were distressed when you learned that your child was a daughter. That's right. Um, because of my history as a girl growing up in Salt Lake, I had had sex much too young. Um, some people call it molestation. I am, have a hard time naming what happened, but I was really young when I had sex. And there was, you know, with a kid who was four years older than me. And so there was some coercion involved. And from the minute, you know, you have a girl, you think, oh, my God, you know, now I have to try to protect her from not only nature and bad things that can happen physically, um, dogs, but also humans. And, you know, I think just generally we imagine with girls, not that girls need more protection, but that sexually you want to protect them. Um, I was talking with my cousin last night about about the book and, you know, saying, what do you do with your daughter? And I'm, you know, pretty upfront with her. I say things like, like, you know, not only there's good touch and bad touch, but, you know, sex is sex and, you know, your life is yours. But I want you to know that once you pass that that level of um, intimacy and you cannot go back and there's other things, uh, there's other things to do with your life. Mainly, I think that's one of the things I, I regret most about what happened to me is that it became so much a focus of my existence, right? I mean, then guys became so much more important than they needed to be. It was very hard to distract me from uh, wanting to have a boyfriend after um, I, was, I had sex. It was really impossible for me to see past that trajectory. And I was lucky that my parents were cool enough to say, all right, fine, that's your focus. We can't stop that focus, but let's try to do some other things too. So, you know, they spent a lot of time making, you know, preparing me for college and making sure I was choosing a good college. Um, They, you know, made sure I had lessons of German and Russian, so I had an option to take things a different way. That um, they kept as many options as open without trying to shut down, because I think I don't know what would have happened if they'd said, "Okay, no boyfriends for you." Um, I, you know, probably would have internalized uh, a lot of the those boundaries and might have, you know, been more destructive. So I think in in turn they they helped make me a more constructive, productive person. And one of the distressing boundaries that we we all have to think about these days. You you looked up the sex offender registry, right? That's, and then, uh, you know you, you you have to think about these things. And and what do you do? How do you establish those kinds of boundaries? Well, and part of it is you can look up all the sex offender databases you want, but then what happens is your whole neighborhood becomes populated with sex offender dots, and you're like, oh, there's. 
10, you know, within a mile and a half of me. I think being able to recognize, okay, knowledge is one thing. I now know that that exists. But it's also important to be um, careful with that knowledge and responsible with that knowledge, recognizing, you know, there's a whole slew of things you can be uh, accused of and be, have to register as a sex offender. And that I don't know if people can be rehabilitated necessarily, but I can't spend my whole life, you know, keeping my daughter in the house. Um, she she goes over to her neighbor's house and plays, you know, and two it's two houses away, and that is distressing to me in some ways. But I also feel I have to trust in the world again, um, and that's a different kind of boundary, right? To say I'm not going to say it's it's a not a no boundary, but a yes boundary that says I'm going to you know, at least let this much world come in. Um, I can only protect so much, and I hope that I've sent her off, you know, into the world with some skills of establishing her own boundaries. What if you talk a little bit more about this idea of wildness? Your, you know, your dog is Quarter Wolf. You talk, uh, you, you imagine, you, you fantasize, you think about the wolf from both sides. Uh, you, you imagine a rancher lying in bed, hearing the calves be eaten by wolves. Then you imagine the the, the wolf herself. That's right. And so you have this one idea of the wildness is danger. Like I was saying, you know, especially in, in comparison to the sex offender database, there's danger out there. There's this wolf that's, that's on the prowl. Um, but then there's also the wolf herself who has no interest in humans. They like want your cow, calf maybe to for lunch, but basically they just want humans to go away. Um, to be able to, to, empathize with the wolf, I think is an important part of what humans should do to expand their available reality, to say, I, I embrace the little bit that's wild in you, the part of you that can change uh, pronouns in, in a sentence, the part of you that can imagine letting your daughter go play at a neighbor's house, even though historically that might be a bad move. Um, this idea that you have to let the nature in a little bit, or things stagnate, right? Like, I mean, to bring it back to to a water metaphor, you have to let the water, the rushing waters in, or otherwise you get a stagnant, mosquito-filled pond. Mm. What if you could read another passage for us? This is another one that you picked out, page 42. Sure. I do not like the way the words, I love you, hollow out the air around you. How sometimes when you hear those words, you think of pickles or stubbed toes of the time your dad was late to pick you up from practice. But you don't think about the person saying the words. I love you as a placeholder for all the things you used to know, like the smell of dirt as dirt, the smell of fire as fire. The letter U at the end of the phrase leaves you off at the place where you turn toward metaphor. When you say, I love you, you might as well say, I love the sky, the wind, the water, your flight. I love you keeps you pinned here. Yeah, that's uh, it. Keeps you pinned there. I guess it's uh, it's it's some permanence. Well, the U is. I think of the U as sort of the uh, no U turn or U turns are allowed in Utah. That's a great thing about Salt Lake City. Um, this idea that I love you, you know, comes back to always comes back to the self. Um, that the U is really hard to imagine. So I think of this in terms of, of of empathy and how can you, you know, I love you puts has to put the I. It, 
back in it. It has to put the world back in it too. That the you is is as uh, as an imaginary being, as much as I imagine myself to be, and as much as I imagine the world to be. So it's an imaginative leap, I think, to say I love you. And it's if you truly, I think, can embrace uh, the idea of love that you embrace all the metaphors of the world. I think that's why I talk about metaphor at that moment. It's uh, a way to say, you are sky, you are water. Mm. Uh, As we come to conclusion here, I wonder, uh, you know, having gone back, you know, metaphorically, imagined um, going back to your your childhood, the place that shaped you, the aridity and the the water, the, the dominant culture, the subculture. I wonder where you where you've ended up. Um, it's interesting. You know, I mean, water still permeates a lot of the work that I do, as I was, I was telling you about the microbiology essay. And there's, again, this optimism that, that we can fix water and that water can fix other things, too. I think having a metaphor that you can go to. You know, to me, writing, writing is, is repair itself. Um, that I, when I write, I write to make things better. And I don't mean necessarily that my work is going to save the world, but it makes, for me, the moment better. Um, when I'm reading about, you know, kids who hang themselves in India because they were scolded for playing too many video games, writing makes me feel like, okay, I can somehow make the... the uh, make a bridge from this moment to the next without falling into the abyss. Nicole Walker's book is Quench Your Thirst with Salt. It's out from Zone 3 Press, and she is reading and signing from her book, The King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, September 21st at 5 in the afternoon. She now teaches at Northern Arizona University. Nicole Walker, pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much, Tom. It was a real pleasure for me as well. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we have part three, the third and final uh, segment in our three-part series on K-12 through education. We're going to Look out there. Look at some out there innovative um, innovations in uh, education. That's coming up tomorrow. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. Insects are the most diverse class of organisms on Earth, with more than 900,000 known species. With that many different kinds of bugs, it's no wonder that they take on such a vast array of shapes, sizes, and colors. From lunamaws to fruit flies to millipedes, the diversity of this class of life is immense. Some insects have developed a shape and coloring so deliberate that it's almost astounding. These insects are mimics, bred to look like something they aren't in an attempt to get a leg up on the survival game. Insects can mimic all kinds of things. Stick bugs, for example, make such convincing twigs that you'll never know they're around until they move. Katydids look just like bright green leaves, and there are some species of caterpillar that in their youngest stages look just like splatters of bird droppings. But the mimics that I find most interesting are those who mimic other insects. There are two main types of insect-to-insect mimicry. Batesian mimicry occurs when one harmless species mimics another dangerous one. Species that look like something fierce can capitalize on that insect's dangerous reputation and potentially be safer from predators because of it. A common Utah pest, the peach tree borer, is a moth that very closely resembles a wasp in both its morphology and behavior. Harmless, nectar-eating hoverflies exhibit the black and yellow stripes of a bee. 
Apparently, it's not just humans who want to stay away from the business end of a wasp or bee. Many insect predators, too, give them a wide berth. Ants also have a fierce reputation in the animal world, and so attract a lot of mimics. A number of spider species not only mimic ants in morphology and behavior, but some also give off ant pheromones, making them smell like friend rather than foe. While many ant-mimicking spiders go undercover as a way to hide from their own predators, some do use their disguise as a way to access the nest of their prey. Batesian mimicry is a delicate balance. Predators need to catch a wasp or two before they associate that color pattern with dangerous prey. If there are too many tasty mimics around, the predators will stop associating black and yellow stripes with a dangerous object, and the mimic's ploy will fail to work. A slight variation on Batesian mimicry are insects with false faces and false eyes. Tiger swallowtails, those large yellow and black butterflies, have red and blue spots on each of their hind wings at a place farthest from their body. These spots, combined with the skinny black tails from which the species gets its common name, are meant to look like the eyes and antenna of another, possibly larger and more fierce, insect. This imagery is meant to frighten off predators, but also in the case of an attack, to spare the most important part of the butterfly's body. The second, less common form of insect-to-insect mimicry is called Mullerian mimicry. This occurs when two equally distasteful insects come to resemble one another. Most of us are familiar with the monarch butterfly. As caterpillars, they feed exclusively on toxic milkweed. The caterpillars take the toxins into their bodies and retain them as adults, making them not only bad-tasting, but also poisonous. Predators have learned to associate that distinct orange and black wing pattern with a bad experience and therefore leave them alone. Viceroy butterflies look incredibly similar to monarchs, the only difference being an extra line of black on the hind wings of a viceroy. While once thought to be Batesian mimics, recent studies have shown that viceroys are equally unpalatable. Their similarity in looks to monarchs, then, serves to reinforce the distasteful nature of both species. Mimicry is, of course, not restricted to the insect kingdom. Some plants have gotten into the mimicry business in order to trick insects. The hammer orchid, which grows in Australia, has a flower that mimics a female bee. Male bees, mistakenly trying to mate with the flower, collect pollen that they then carry with them to the next, ensuring pollination of this sneaky plant. So this ingenious tactic some insects use to gain a leg up in the game of survival can also be used against them to the advantage of others. Isn't life amazing? For more information and photos of some insect mimics, visit our website at www.wildaboututah.org. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan. 
KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. Coming up at 10 o'clock, the TED Radio Hour, followed by performance today at 11.